Several summers ago, I filled in for a friend of mine at his church in uh, Shepherd's Bush, London. It's in the west end of London. He had to come back to the United States on furlough for a couple months. And so my wife and I took our, we only had two kids at that point. My wife was pregnant with our third. And we went and we lived in their flat and filled in at his church. And it was an awesome experience because I love to travel and I love London. I love other cultures. And so it was a great chance to to get to learn and experience different things. Uh, I went to a Premier League soccer game for the local team, the Queens Park Rangers. They're not good, <laughs> but it was fun. And part of my responsibilities being there was to preach uh, to his church. So it's one Sunday. I'm trying to think of an illustration to communicate that God is one and that he invites us through Jesus to be part of his team. And so I thought, okay, uh, I'm going to tell I'm gonna use the, the Queens Park Rangers because the Premier League which is the highest soccer league in the UK, uh, is a unique structure. Um, the worst teams get sent down to a lower league, and the best teams in the lower league get moved up to the upper league. It's called relegation, and so it's kind of cool. If you're, if you're the worst team, you don't want to be the worst team because you are moving down, and you don't want to do that. And Queen's Park Rangers always kind of hovered on, uh, on relegation, like they're always kind of on the cusp of getting sent back down, and then when they got sent down, they'd be really good, and they'd come back up, but they're always kind of hovered in that range. And so I tried to use this illustration of saying that it's, it's as if you could find out the Premier League season results uh, before the season ever started. So you know what team is going to win. You know the team that's going to be champion, and you can be, you're invited before the season even happens to be part of the winning team. Right? You can root for the winning team and get the winning team's scarf and learn the winning team's fight songs, and, and you, can be, you can be a supporter of the best team. God invites us to do that. And after the service, uh, this guy that I'd come to be friends with, this British guy came up, and he said, nice job, uh, that illustration didn't work at all. I was like, oh, hello, oh, thank you for that, kind sir. And he explained to me why. He said, no self-respecting Premier League fan would ever switch their allegiance. It doesn't matter how good or bad your team is. It doesn't matter if they knew their team was going to be relegated because your fanhood was based on where you lived. These clubs were in neighborhoods, and so you were the fan of the team in your neighborhood. It didn't matter if they were great or they were bad. That was your team. Fanhood was passed down from parents to kids. You learned their songs, you screamed your heart out, and it didn't matter if they were good or not. No one would switch teams, even if they know their team would get kicked out of the league. It occurred to me, I didn't know my audience well enough. I mean, I thought I did, but I didn't know them well enough. Context matters. Understanding the context would have made my story so much richer and so much more meaningful. And that's the idea behind this series that we're in called Bumper Sticker Bible. These verses that maybe we know, maybe you're, you're familiar with, it's digging into them to go, there's something even deeper and richer and more meaningful when we understand them better. And we're going to continue this morning by looking at Jeremiah 29, 11. Now, if you know a verse in the Bible, you probably know John 3, 16. And if you know two verses in the Bible, you probably know John 3, 16 and Jeremiah 29, 11. If you don't know any of them, that's okay. You're in luck. We're going to talk about it this morning. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And that seems like a good verse, right? It's like, hey, everything's going to work out. All right, I like this verse. Not like one of these verses that tells me stuff I got to do. I like this one that's going, hey, things are going to work out for you. But we're going to dig into that more because the larger context of this verse, it doesn't tell a different story, 
but it does tell a richer one. This chapter of Jeremiah is significant. Nearly 600 years before Jesus, Israel was captured by the Babylonian Empire. Tens of thousands of people were killed or were captured. Babylon came through and just wiped everybody out. They took over. And the captives were taken back to Babylon to be slaves. It likely took them four plus months to make this journey. So not only did everybody that's on this journey know people that were killed during the Babylonian invasion, but they also most likely watched people die during this journey. It was a hard journey. Jeremiah 29, this chapter, is addressed to these people in exile in Babylon. They were sitting there waiting for God to rescue them. And that's who Jeremiah is talking to right here. Because what God does is he raised up a prophet, he raised up Jeremiah, who's just a man that God used to communicate his message to his people. And that's what we're going to look at. Now, as, as we get started, I've got some bad news for you. I've got some bad news. And the first thing we're going to look at is this. The bad news is God asks us to do really hard things. God asks us to do really hard things. We see in verse 5 and 6, this is God's message to his people. It says, build homes, plan to stay, plant gardens, eat the fruit they produce, marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. You notice anything interesting about those things that he tells them to do? They all take more and more time. They all take more and more time. You can build a house in less time than you can plant a garden and reap its fruit. Right? You can plant a garden and reap its fruit in less time than it takes to, to get married and have kids. And then your kids are supposed to find spouses so that they can have kids, so you have grandchildren. What he's telling them is dig in, invest, wait. It's going to be a while. He doesn't want them to just sit there on their hands and do nothing. He says, dig in. It's going to be a little while. And then he goes on in verse 7 to say this, And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Think about that for a minute. Work for the peace and prosperity of your enemy. Pray for your enemy. This is the worst situation that they have ever experienced. This is the deepest pain that they have ever known. They have been ripped from their homeland. They no longer have a country. They are exiles. They are slaves. They have watched loved ones die. What future or hope did they have left? It is the worst moment of their lives. And then God says to them, pray for the welfare of your enemy. He doesn't say, sit there and undermine them. He doesn't say, pray for their, that I'll come and destroy them. He says, pray for their blessing. Seek their welfare. God is asking them to do the hardest thing he could possibly ask. Imagine what that must have felt like. But really, that's God's heart because we see this same idea echoed by Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Imagine, life is miserable and then God has asked them, You can't even be angry in your heart. 
You can't even mumble under your breath that you want to see them destroyed. You have to seek the welfare of the city. Look to be a blessing on your enemy. Pray for your enemy. That's a hard, hard thing to ask. Who's your enemy? Who's, who's your enemy? Now, maybe you hear this and you go, well, listen, I, I don't have like anybody's face on a dartboard at my house. And I'd say, hey, great start, right? That's always a positive place to start. You don't need to have a blood feud with someone, but who's your enemy? Who's your enemy? Maybe it's someone who's hurt you. Maybe someone in your past, someone that's brought pain into your life that you, you have trouble shaking and letting go of. Maybe it's a boss you work for that you don't feel like understands you or a boss that, that has mistreated you. Maybe it's your neighbor that for the love won't cut his hedges that are over the fence even though you've talked about it four times. Leave my fence alone. I don't have a fence, so that's not my neighbor. That's not auto autobiographical. Who's your enemy? Who's your enemy? Who is it hard for you to love? Who's it hard for you to engage with? What hard thing is God asking you to do? I guarantee you he's asking you to do something. What hard thing is God asking you to do? Maybe it's repairing a broken relationship. Maybe it's breaking a pattern of self-destructive behavior. Maybe it's surrender. Maybe it's loving someone that's hard to love. What hard thing is God asking you to do? What difficult situation does God want you to trust him in the midst of? Maybe it's finances and you're struggling to make ends meet and you're not, you're not sure how it's going to happen. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you've been mistreated or wronged. What difficult situation does God want you to trust him in the midst of? Because the bad news is God asks us to do hard things. But it's not all bad news. I've got some good news, right? The good news is God has really good reasons. Really good reasons. God knows what he's doing. Because in the hardship of verse 7, right, in the, in the difficultness of the ask that God makes for them to to love their enemy, to pray for their enemy, there's this little nugget that it's easy to overlook. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare determines your welfare. I love how the ESV says it, for it's in its welfare you will find your welfare. God has really good reasons for this. God's not saying, I just want you to be miserable. I think we misunderstand deeply God's heart when we're like, God just wants to punish me and make my life miserable. That's not who he is. God loves us and cares for us and wants to see us know the life that he's created us to know. But he has reasons when we go through stuff. There's purpose behind it. And what he's saying to these people here is, you will find your welfare when you are willing to love them the way that I love you. God wants his people to be a blessing to others. He wants to use them to show his power, his love, his faithfulness to Babylon. Really, that's a promise that God has made to his people since way back in the beginning of the Bible, that he'll use them to bless the nations, so that, that everyone would, I hopefully, come to know God. God wants his people to be a blessing. He has reasons. 
He explains them further in, in verse 4 when he says, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives. He has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. What's God doing there? He's taking credit for it. God's saying, Babylon didn't do this to you. I did this. Babylon didn't do this to you. I did this. He's reminding them that he is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is powerful. And he's saying, I did this for a reason. I did this on purpose, not to to hurt you and make you miserable. God unmoored the people from the things they felt like they depended on. Their own country, their own king, their own temple, so that they would depend on him and him completely. God wants their attention and he wants ours too. Not because he's insecure and needs us to build him up, right? That's not who God is. God's not like, oh man, do people like me? I really hope they like me. God wants us to focus on him because he knows that's the only way to the life that we want to experience. God loves us enough to allow us to experience pain, to experience difficulty, because let's be honest, that's the only way we learn. Our default mode is we learn the hard way. I mean, that's so me. I don't want to admit that, but that's so me. I feel like there's, there's moments where like this conversation, if I were to have this conversation with God, it would go like this. You can have the easy way or the hard way. It's like, I think I'm going to choose the hard way. You don't have to choose the hard way. I know, but I think I'm going to go with the hard way. You know why? Because I'm an idiot. That's just true of us as humans. We are so seduced by our own hearts that we think we know what's best that we say to God, no, 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 no. I realize that you might be the sovereign Lord of the cosmos, but uh, I read Wikipedia every day, so I think I know my, my stuff. So God, if you could just, you know, I got this one. That's our attitude. Sometimes God rips the things we lean on away so we have nothing left to turn to but him. And in that moment, it is not God being mean or vindictive. It is God being his most loving, saying, I could leave you to your own devices, but you would run headlong away from me. You would run into destruction. Instead, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get your attention because I care about you that much. You might want to be the cool parents, but if your kids are running out into the street, you're not going to be like, listen, I just want them to make their own choices, okay? You're not going to let them do it. And they might feel like you're restricting them, but you're saying, I love you enough to step into your life and protect you from you. And that's what God is doing. God knows that if we get what we want right away, if we get instant gratification, then there's no lesson learned and there's no experience experienced. God wants our hearts to be focused on him. And so he's willing to allow us to be uncomfortable because that is when we learn the best. That's when we finally get to that point in our life where we go, I can't do it on my own. I mean, that's my story. I grew up in the church, but it wasn't until I reached this point in my life in college where it's like, I cannot do this on my own, that I really feel like I understood what surrender meant. God allowed me to get to that point where I finally realized this is beyond me, God. I need you. Not because he wanted to see me miserable, but because he loves me. And I hear that from people over and over again. God has reasons and he wants us to trust him. I was talking with a woman this week, this sweet woman that's dealing with serious, serious 
medical issues. She recently had a surgery and, and it wasn't as effective as they had hoped and so needs to have another one and is trying to figure out when that can happen. And, and she's just not sure how everything is going to turn out. It is serious. And when she was in for her last surgery, she and the doctor were talking about family and how much she loves her girls. And the anesthesiologist said to think of something that makes you really happy. And the doctor thought she would think of her girls because she loves those girls so much. But instead, she drifted away to sleep with this anesthesia, saying over and over into her mask, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That's where her hope is. That's where her trust is. Man, I want that to be true about me. To be able to stare fear in the face and say, you don't win because Jesus already has. God wants us to trust him like that. He asks us to do hard things because he knows what to poke on in our hearts. He knows what we hold on to instead of him. The hard things that he asks of us are part of his perfect plan for our lives, and they are for our good. Because that sets up the good news, right? But the for our good, that's the great news, right? We don't just stop at good news. There's more. The great news is God wants us to flourish, God wants us to flourish. He wants us to thrive personally, emotionally, spiritually. That's his dream for us. That's his desire for us. Verse 10 says, this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. God is proving himself here. He's setting up a situation where he can prove himself again. God knows that we lose faith, that we get distracted, that we struggle. And so God says, I'm going to prove myself again. He does not have to, but he does. He wants us to know a wholeness that we can only know with him. We can only know through him. Folks, our worst, our hardest moments reveal what we really believe about God. When life gets hard, that really shows what we believe about God. And it's too often that we get angry at God for not doing what we want and we lose sight of the fact that God loves us. God wants us to know his peace even in the worst possible times. And it's there that we see Jeremiah 29, 11. Enter the picture. It's there that we read, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. And I love how the NIV says that part, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That's what God wants. Remember this scenario. This is the worst moment of their lives. This is the worst moment of their lives and they are filled with, with anger and with pain and they, loved ones have died and they've been ripped from their homeland and God just asked of them the hardest thing they could have asked for them, love your enemies, Pray for them. It's into that context that God says, I have a perfect plan for you. This is for your good. His love pours off the page here. He cares about us that deeply that he says, all of this is for your good. I love you that much. That's the context and the setting for this verse. With fear and with, with anger and with pain in the hearts of God's people, God says, I've got a plan. It's a good plan. 
powerful. And we see that fleshed out even more when we look at the two verses that come afterwards, verses 12 and 13, where God says, In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's the reason for all this. That answers the why. Why would God allow us to experience these things? Why would God allow us to experience pain? Why would God allow us to experience problems? Why would God allow us to suffer? Why would God allow illness or disease or, or marital issues or financial problems? Why would God allow us to experience that? Because God loves us that much. He wants to draw us to the point where we trust him, where we seek him with all that we are. Our heart doesn't just mean our feelings. It means with all of us. God wants all of you. Because he knows that's the only way we experience the life that we are desperately craving. He wants us to know him and trust him. He wants to remove our dependence on ourselves so that we depend on him instead. That can be so hard. But that's where he wants to move us to. When we grow in faith, we open the door to be more vulnerable and to be motivated by God's love and, and his power and his influence and, and his direction. This one writer says it like this, when life is good and we have no problems, we can almost let ourselves believe we have no need for God. But in my experience, sometimes the richest blessings come through pain and hard things. Folks, the perfect plan that God has for us is not the way around the hard things. It's the way through the hard things. God's plan is not the way around. It's the way through. Straight ahead is the fastest way through it. What, what do we do, though? We often backpedal, right? We backtrack. We, we look for an alternate route. We try and go around this. We want to avoid the worst of it. We're, we're trying to, to avoid this stuff. And in, in the process, we get ourselves so lost, we're even further from, than where we started, from where we're trying to go. Because we do it on our own. And God says, no, let me lead you. Let me show you the way through. The more dire the circumstances, the more meaningful the rescue Harrison O'Keen was a cook on a ship for an oil company. And several years ago, there were really high seas off the coast of Nigeria, and their ship started to sink. And the crew's trying to make their way off, and this flood of water rushes in and sucks away the three guys in front of him and forces him back into the ship as it sinks down and rests on the seafloor 100 feet below the surface. He's trapped. And he's by himself. He's the only survivor. And he managed to find a small pocket of air where he could breathe. He began pulling paneling from the walls to use as a raft. For three days he drank Coca-Cola, unable to eat or drink anything else. And the conditions started to take a toll. It's not only pitch black, but the salt water started to take the skin off his body and his tongue. He said he could sense the bodies of, of his dead crewmen in the water with him. He's forgotten. There's no way out, facing certain death. He was trapped just waiting to die. Three days later, a South Africa dive team shows up. They come to, to recover the bodies 
of those that have been killed. And they're diving in the wreck. And they see something. And a diver reaches up a hand and grabs onto Harrison. Harrison can't believe it. They stand up. They see him. They want to get him to safety. And one of the divers looks at him and says, you mustn't panic. You must listen to me. And they put a mask on him and they lead him to safety. That's what God has done for us through his son. That's the hope that he's pointing us to. Harrison was rescued by someone from the outside who stepped into his story when he needed it the most. Someone reached out, took his hand, and led him back to life. God says the same thing to us. You mustn't panic. You must listen to me because he knows the way to life. And he wants us to go with him. God says that same thing to us so that we can be hopeful even in our worst, most painful moments. We can know that no matter what we go through, we've not been forgotten. No matter what we go through, whether it's a situation of our own making or it's something we had nothing to do with, no matter what we go through, we can look to the God that says, I have a perfect plan for you. I have a hope and a future for you. Things that are greater than what you are going through right now. There's three things that I want to leave you with this morning. Three things that have really stuck with me this week. And the first is this. If you're going through something like this, first thing to do is dig in. Dig in. There is something to be learned about yourself and about God no matter what you're going through. Because remember, God has reasons and he wants to draw our heart back to him. And if we're honest, right, our first thought when we experience that stuff is often it's like, this isn't fair. Or, God, why aren't you fixing this? I know that's my heart too. Like, God, why aren't you fixing this? Like, this is messed up. Like, why aren't you doing this? And I rarely stop to realize God loves me enough to say, there's something in you, Josh, that I need to get after. And you're not going to hear me any other way. At least you've proven really, really resistant to it. Dig in. Don't just wait it out. Ask God, what are you trying to teach me? God, what are you trying to get at in my heart? Where is God asking you to dig in in your life right now? Where is he asking you to dig in? Where does God want you to invest and put down roots and not just sit on your hands? Where is he asking you to dig in? Second thing is look outward. Because, man, when we go through stuff, it is so easy to get sucked into this self-centeredness where it's, it, all we can see is our own pain. All we can see is our own struggle. Like, that's all we can see. I want to challenge you to look outward for the same reason I need to, right? Because what I need to realize is it's not all about me. It's not. That other people are hurting too. That God has called us and created us to be a community, that we're not supposed to do life on our own, that that's something that we culturally add to the pot here, but God created us to live life together. It's one of the reasons why we value life groups so highly as a church, because we all have moments in our lives where we need to come and just unload our baggage and go, I need help. And it's a chance for us to come alongside people knowing full well that we will need that ourselves down the road. Community matters. The verses we read were written to a community. We often over-personalize and go, well, this is just, just 
applies to me, but God wrote this to a group of people living life together. And it matters to us as a group of people living life together. We can find hope in community. We need to look outward so that we don't get consumed by what we're going through, but we also need to look outward so that we can walk alongside other people who need that help. And folks, it is a lie when we say we don't need others. It is just not true, and we know that in our heart. But sometimes we're too embarrassed or ashamed to say we need help. Let me say it for you. We all need help. All of us do. That doesn't make you unique if you need that. It's not weakness to say you need help from others. It's strength. Last thing is seek God. Seek God. And I know that sounds simple. But here's the thing. That's what God is saying is the point of all this stuff. You will find me when you seek me with all your heart. God wants us to know him so we can trust him. Step by step, moment by moment. Trust is hard. Trust is hard. Faith is hard. But here's the the hope. It's snowballs. Right? You don't dive into the deep end of faith all at once. We work ourselves there. We trust God in the small things. And as we see him prove himself, then we trust him in bigger things. And the more you trust, the easier it gets. We are all going through stuff in our lives. We have all been through pain and difficulty. That's just the reality of our existence. The hope that God wants us to know is no matter where we are, no matter what it feels like, he has secured our forever future. Because think about it. He said it's going to be 70 years before they come back. The majority of people that are hearing this are not going to make it to the end of the 70 years. And so if the only way that we can have hope is if, is if the stuff we want is fulfilled in the time frame we want it, then then life is just hopeless. But what God says is even in the midst of difficulty, there is hope because the future is secure. Because no matter how long this situation feels or how long life feels, I promise you, eternity is much longer. And we can look forward to the hope that no matter what I experience now, God has secured my forever. And it is good if we're just willing to trust him. Folks, I want to leave you with two questions as you bow your heads. Who is your enemy? Like we talked about earlier, who is your enemy? What would it look like for you to love them, to pray for them this week? What would it look like And what hard thing has God asked of you? What hard thing has God asked of you? How could doing that draw you closer to him?